Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I would love to meet you at some point. I want to let you know uh, something cool that our church does is when students go to camp, um, we make these bracelets with a name of uh, one of the leaders or students who's at camp so that people can pray for them while they're there. And so um, those are available in the lobby out here. If you want to grab one of those, that'd be awesome. I just so happened to grab someone who shares my name. So I'll be praying for Nate this week. Um, Today, um, we're continuing this series called How to Think Like Jesus. We'll be in Luke chapter 16. When I was a kid, um, my dad used to sit me down and he would say, now son, I want you to think about where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And that was always uh, difficult for me because it was like, well, you know, I'm only eight, you know, um, it's really hard for me to imagine what life is going to be like in 10 years, you know, um, I haven't even made it that far yet. Um, and so it was always frustrating, but I think the reason that my dad would do that with me is because he wanted me to be wise. And one of my favorite definitions of wisdom is simply living with the future in mind. Wisdom is living with the future in mind. It's thinking about, okay, where are you now? And where do you want to be? And in light of that, what would be the smart thing to do? That's wisdom. And you can think through that in a number of areas of life. Financially, you can think through that. So if you've got a financial decision to make, where do you want to be? If you don't know that, it's going to be hard to make the wise decision. You can do that with a physical decision, some kind of health decision that you've got to make. Where do you want to be? You can do that with a professional decision or a relationship decision. In all areas of life, you can, you can ask that question. And that's one of the ways of trying to make wise decisions is just knowing what you want the future to be, living with the future in mind. And the brilliance of Jesus is he takes this a step further. A lot of foolish decisions could be avoided just simply by thinking about where you want to be in this life. Jesus takes it a step forward and says that if you really want to be wise, think with the future in mind, and when you think about the future, think beyond your death. When you think about the future, think beyond your death. That's what Jesus is going to teach us today. And he does it in the form of a parable. Parables are short, simple stories that have a lesson for us to learn that teach us how to think about ourselves or the world or God in a new way. And so that's what Jesus is going to try to do in today's parable is teach us how to live with the future in mind, a future that goes beyond our death. And so if we will heed his teaching, we can live wisely. So what we're going to do is look at the parable and then talk about what it might look like for us to think like Jesus and then live accordingly. So Luke chapter 16, this parable starts by contrasting these two individuals. The first is just rich man, 
<laughs> He's not given a name. But from his name that he is called, uh, we learn something about him, and that is he's rich, right? Uh, so rich man is rich, and he also dresses in really nice clothes. In their culture, that meant that he dressed in purple and fine linen. So he's clothed very nicely, and not only that, but he eats really well. He eats great food and he eats lavishly great food. And in Jesus's culture, you know, you didn't normally get to eat meat. It's different from our culture. But this guy probably does eat meat. This guy probably does enjoy the finest foods. He probably has them brought in from everywhere and he enjoys them. And the other thing that we learn about this man is that he lived in a really nice neighborhood because his house was nice enough that it had a gate. And again, in this culture, to have a house with a gate meant that you were very wealthy. And so the rich man, that's him. He's rich, nice clothes, nice house, nice food. From an earthly standpoint, there's nothing that he goes without. That's the picture. The second man that we meet is a poor man, and his name is Lazarus. And it's kind of interesting that Jesus gives him a name. It's the only time he does that in a parable. And there's a lot of uh, thinking that goes into why Jesus may have done this, but the bottom line is I think that Jesus wants to show dignity to this man in the story. This is the first surprise of the story that the man who has no earthly status has a name in the story. The poor man's life could not be more opposite of the rich man's life. Lazarus is not rich. He's poor. He's not dressed in purple and fine linen, but instead he's clothed with sores, which just means that there's something wrong with him. He has something that makes his life very miserable and something that makes him very off-putting to most people. So rather than being dressed in something that demonstrates his worth and his respectability, he's clothed in something that is just gross and weird. And not only that, but he doesn't get to eat the finest foods lavishly. He doesn't feast on the weekends. Instead, he just wishes he could eat the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And rather than living in this really nice house that has a gate, instead, he's just laying out beside the gate of the rich man. That's his life. And in case you need more to understand how different these two are, by the way, he gets, you know, Uh, surrounded and licked by dogs all the time. And that's not intended to be like, oh, that's so cute. He's got a pet, you know? So at least he's got a pet. Man's best friend, you know, everybody else has abandoned him, but, you know, shadow is right next to his side. Um, Instead, it's like he's the outcast. Now, 
They could not be more opposite. If you were going to aspire to be one of those two men, which one would you choose? I mean, like that is a pretty easy question to consider, right? If you were going to be friends with one of these two men, which one would you prefer to be friends with? If you were going to make one of these two men your elder at the church, which one of these two men would you prefer? Well, given only what we know from the first three verses, of course you would choose the rich man. And that's the brilliance of the story. Is your future does not just refer to this life, but your future goes beyond death. And what's interesting is both of these men's fate in this life ended up being the same. Even though the rich man was, you know, living it up and Lazarus was not able to enjoy that, even though the rich man was very comfortable in this life and Lazarus was very uncomfortable They both died. And maybe that's the sobering news that you need to hear today. Is that regardless of your earthly status, you will die. Now, there are people who believe that because of their wealth, they could actually escape this. Did you know that? There's a thing called the Cryonics Institute. You can Google this. Where you can freeze your body, you can pay a lot of money to do so, and you can bet your life on future science that will be able to reverse the curse of death. And of course, only the privileged few have that opportunity because of wealth in order to be able to pursue that. A bunch of rumors about Walt Disney. But the fate, this is sad news. This is maybe hard and sobering news, but the fate of everyone is the same. Everyone will die. And if when you think about the future, you stop there, then the rich man's story is the story you should embrace. But if there is life beyond death, then maybe you need to learn how to think like Jesus about how to live your life. Maybe living wisely, being a person of wisdom is not just thinking with the future that leads up to your death but maybe it's living with a future that goes beyond death. And that's the brilliance of this story is how these two who are opposites, the rich man who is exalted and the poor man, Lazarus, who is in humility, how these things are reversed in death. Look at verse 22. One day the poor man died died 
and was carried away, away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It says that the poor man was carried away to Abraham's side. And when I used to read this, I thought that Abraham's side, it was always confusing to me because it was like, what is that? Like he's like going into Abraham. That's weird. Um, like Abraham's side was like this realm, you know, or something. But it's not. It's actually way simpler than that. The picture here is that he gets carried away and he's sitting next to Abraham. And they're at a table enjoying a feast in the kingdom of God. That's the picture. In the Jewish imagination, to be next to Abraham was to be in a place of honor and security and comfort. That's what it is. It's to be seated at the table in a place of honor with security, meaning you're good now, you made it, and with comfort free from the pains, the agonies, the miseries of life. And that's where the poor man is taken after he dies, to Abraham's side. He's at the table. He's enjoying the feast in the kingdom of God. The rich man died and was also buried. Verse 23 and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And so these two men, their eternal destiny is just as opposite as their earthly status had been. On earth, you couldn't have any more opposite two people. And the same turns out to be true in their eternal destiny. The poor man, Lazarus, is at Abraham's side, at the feast in the kingdom of God, full of security and honor and comfort, while the rich man is in Hades, it says, in torment. Now, the word Hades... Uh, refers to the realm of the dead in the ancient world. It's equivalent to the Old Testament word Sheol, Sheol. It's the place of the dead. And in the Old Testament and in extra-biblical um, accounts, which refers to just uh, contemporary Greek writings that are not in the Bible, um, Hades or Sheol just always refers to where anyone goes when they die. So uh, it's just, again, the realm of the dead. In the New Testament, Hades, though, doesn't just refer to the place where anyone would go when they die. Hades refers to another place called Gehenna, or hell is how we translate that. And so the picture here is that the poor man Lazarus is in the kingdom with Abraham at a table 
and comfort. The rich man is suffering in torment and agony in hell. Now, maybe that's one of the reasons for you, that you are hesitant to embrace the Christian understanding of the world, the Christian faith. Because it seems just unreasonable that God would do that to anyone. And I think that's a very valid question. It's actually one of the things that I struggle with the most with the Christian faith as well. And so if, if that's you, we don't have time today to dive into all of the thinking behind why God would have a place like this. And Jesus, his purpose in this text is not to explain that. In this text, he just assumes that. But there is a class going on right now in our church um, that is called The Reason for God. And in that class, they're going through a book by a pastor named Tim Keller. And one of the questions that they will explore in that class is this question. Why would God send someone to hell? And how is that good or right or just? That's one of the questions they'll explore. And so that class takes place at 1045 downstairs in room 201. If you're interested in that, would love to invite you to be a part of that class. You can go next week, all right? In this text, Jesus just assumes that. And the point that he wants you to see is the reversal that takes place, all right? Now, while the rich man is there and looks up and sees Lazarus off in the distance next to Abraham, he says something, verse 24. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Now, when he first starts speaking, you think that maybe there's some humility there because he's saying, Father Abraham, would you have mercy on me? which is something that he wouldn't have had to say too many times in his earthly life. But then you see that he's never really changed because his next instruction for Father Abraham is, would you have Lazarus go run an errand for me? You see the pride? He's now in the place of comfort sitting at the table a table that's much more glorious, food that is much more incredible than the food that this rich man in, experienced on earth. And he still sees Lazarus as someone who should serve him. And so would you tell him to go just dip his finger in some water and come put it on my tongue because man, I'm in anguish here in these flames. Abraham responds, son, verse 25, son, remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. 
but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. He says, while you were on earth, you received your good things. And notice that the little word your is there before the rich man's stuff, but it's not there before Lazarus's bad things. And that's significant. He's saying, when you were on earth, you received your comfort. You took ownership for your comfort. You cared a lot about your comfort, and that caused you to make a lot of decisions. Decisions that caused you to ignore the things of God. And you received your comfort. But now, Lazarus is in the place of comfort. And besides all this, he says, verse 26, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. We need to be careful not to build an entire theology of the afterlife on just this one parable. We need to think about the whole of scripture. But I think Jesus is teaching us some things about the afterlife here. Here are three short ones, short things. First, it's conscious. It's conscious. It's not just soul sleep where you're unaware, you're just kind of, you know, it's conscious. Two, it's permanent. It's permanent. There's no going back and forth. There's no redos after death. And third, there are two options. Comfort or torment. Comfort or anguish. Feasting at the table in God's kingdom or feeling like you're in a blaze in hell. Those are the two options. It's conscious, it's permanent. Choose wisely. Now it seems like that maybe this text is teaching that rich people go to hell and poor people get to go to the kingdom at Abraham's side. It's not what, it's, that's not what this passage is teaching, but why? That's what the rest of the text shows us. Look at verse 27. After he realizes that he's not gonna be able to get a little bit of satisfaction from this, you know, water for his tongue, then here's what he does. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house. Notice we're still sending Lazarus on this errand. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. He realizes that he probably did make some wise decisions if living for the future just ends at your death. He made a lot of wise decisions. 
But if your future goes beyond death, he realizes I was a fool and I've got five brothers who are also fools. So we need to warn them. We need to, what's the warning that they need to hear? They need to hear that the future goes beyond death. Earthly comfort is far less important than eternal comfort. That's what they need to hear. And how Abraham responds demonstrates what a person needs to do in order to end up in eternal comfort rather than eternal misery, to end up at Abraham's side rather than in Hades. Here's how Abraham responds. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And when he says Moses and the prophets, he's referring to the Bible, the Old Testament. And so Abraham is saying, the way that you come into eternal comfort is by listening by hearing and trusting God's word, what God has said. Do you remember in the very first parable that we looked at, the parable of the sower or the soils? Do you remember what Jesus said over and over and over? He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you want to be wise, if you want to live with the future in mind, a future that goes beyond your death, if you want to end up in the kingdom and not in Hades, listen to what God says. Listen to his word. But this wasn't a satisfactory answer for the rich man. Instead, He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Listen, they're not going to listen to the Bible, all right? But if they saw someone go from death to life and come back to warn them, then they would listen. And have you ever felt this way? Like, God, if you would give a miracle of some kind, if you would write it in the clouds, of course I would follow. But I'm not just going to listen to your word. And Abraham, in this parable, concludes by saying something that is so sobering, especially to the original audience who heard this. He says this. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to what God has said, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The original audience for this story was the Pharisees. Just before this, it tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. That is, they loved to think about making decisions that would work out so that they would have comfort in this life. 
when Jesus showed up on the scene and he said that they were not rightly understanding Moses and the prophets because Moses and the prophets ultimately talk about him. They didn't listen. And then after they had Jesus crucified, he was raised from the dead. And they didn't listen then. The way this story ends should serve, and I think is intended to serve, as a warning to us. The warning is this. Do not be a fool. Do not live your life so consumed with comfort in this life that you sacrifice comfort eternally. Instead, listen to Jesus. Come to him, trust in him. Bank your life on him. Bet all of your future on being connected to him. That's the warning. That's the challenge. How are you going to respond? You know, all of us are drawn to try and find our lasting comfort from the things of this earth. Whether that be having wealth, having talent or opportunity, having relationships that are life-giving and satisfying, having the life that you always dreamed of. All of us are tempted to try and find our comfort in those things. The warning of this text is that those things cannot give you lasting, eternal comfort. So live with the future in mind, a future that goes beyond your death. One of the things I'm doing in my quiet time right now um, is I got this Bible that has creeds and confessions in the back of it. And there's um, a catechism, which is just a question and answer um, teaching tool that the church has used for centuries to try and help people understand basics of the Christian faith. That's what a catechism is. One of those most famous catechisms is called the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you grew up on that. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? I'm curious how you answer that question. As you're laying in bed at night, as you're trying to calm down from the stresses, the pains of life, what is the thing that you tell yourself that, that's intended to just ease your heart? 
Does it have something to do with the amount of money that you have saved? Does it have something to do with your 401k? Does it have something to do with the safety of your kids? Does it have something to do with the person lying next to you? Does it have something to do with your success? What's the thing you tell yourself? The way that the catechism answers the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That is the confession that lands you at Abraham's side instead of hell. That my only comfort, the only thing I have to bank on, to bet on, to cling to in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to Jesus Christ, my faithful savior. Jesus Christ, our faithful savior, is the supreme example of what it looks like to live with the future in mind. Jesus left the power and privileges of heaven and came to earth. There's never been a greater demotion. And Jesus, while he was on earth, continued to deny himself, to obey his heavenly father and to take up his cross until he eventually took up a literal cross and died. And he was dying for sinners like you and me so that we could be redeemed and rescued from the darkness that we find ourselves in here in our sin and on this earth. And so that we could be rescued from the domain of Satan and the future that belongs for him and those who, try, who choose to follow him. Jesus died on the cross, shedding his blood so that we could be saved from that. And from an earthly vantage point, that was foolish as could be. Unless the way that you understand wisdom is living with a future that goes beyond your death. And Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to be with his father and he will return someday to judge the living and the dead. So heed the warning of this passage. Do not bank your life on something that cannot take you through death, beyond death. Instead, live wisely. Bank your life on Jesus, the one who died and has been raised. what would it look like for you to live this way? What does real wisdom look like? The answer throughout the gospel of Luke is real wisdom looks like doing the kinds of things that Jesus did, following Jesus, being like Jesus. And that means denying yourself and taking up your cross. The sin of the rich man was not being rich, The sin of the rich man 
is that he clung to his riches. He found his comfort in something that could not help him beyond death. What would it look like for you to cling to Jesus by denying yourself and taking up your cross? A great exercise. You could do it today or sometime this week. Would be to go to Colossians chapter 3 and just meditate on Colossians chapter 3. I think Colossians chapter 3 is the Apostle Paul's reflection on what it looks like to live with the with eternity in mind. And what you'll find is that if you choose to live with eternity in mind, it will affect every area of your life. With your finances, it'll cause you to fight greed, to fight the need for accumulation, and it'll cause you to be generous. It's like Pastor Barry talked about last week. Love people, use money. We're called to love people and to use money rather than loving money and using people. I think there's a warning here to those of us who are rich. And in America, that's most people given the world's standards. And here's the warning, that your earthly comfort could blind you from seeing your need for eternal comfort. Your wealth could deceive you into thinking that your future is secure. So heed this warning. What would it look like in your relationships to deny yourself, take up your cross, to live with a future that goes beyond death? What would it look like with your sexuality? What would it look like with your time? What would it look like with your speech? Those are all questions that the Apostle Paul addresses in Colossians chapter 3. Today, as we close, I'm going to invite the band back up, and we have an opportunity to remember this tangibly by taking the Lord's Supper together. When you came in, if you received this, if you would go ahead and take this out and begin to open that, we'll take it together in just a moment. If you did not receive one, you can, they're back at the table or we've got some people passing them around. Thank you guys for doing that. But this is a picture of Jesus. The bread is a picture of his body. A body that was only possible because he left heaven, came to earth, and took on flesh. So in this picture, we have a picture of the humility of God on display. And in this body that 
that Jesus had when he came to earth. He used it to serve others rather than himself. He was obedient to his father. Obedient even to the point of death. And so this body went to a cross. And that leads to the second picture. The cup is a picture of his blood. Blood that was shed on the cross so that sinners like me and like you can be made right with God. So what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper is we are making a confession to ourselves, to the people around us, and to God. That my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own. My future is not made secure by my money, by my, by my behavior, by my status on earth. My future is made secure only by receiving Jesus. That's what we're confessing to ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of that in this moment. We're reminding one another of this in this moment. And we're declaring our trust in God in this moment. So would you take just a moment before we eat this, before we drink this, to confess that to the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for sending your son. We praise you for his teaching that warns us about the things that are to come. We praise you for his sinless life. We praise you for his death on the cross. We praise you for raising him from the dead. We praise you for offering us forgiveness in his name, life and comfort in his name. We praise you for that, God. God, I ask now that your spirit would be active. 
God, would you give us faith to trust Jesus, to cling to him, to listen to his word and do it. God, would we repent of the ways we've depended on ourselves, our wealth, our money, our status, our privilege, our power. Would we deny ourselves and and take up our cross? Would we be people known for compassion, kindness, generosity? Not because we want to make a name for ourselves, but because we want to represent you and your kindness, compassion, and generosity that you've shown to us in your son, Jesus. Would you help us to lift our eyes by the power of your spirit to think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth? Would you be honored? It's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?